Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Tiffany Wilding, you have to brief portfolio managers of PIMCO. They're some shell-shocked, others I'm sure are finding this opportunistic. What is your message to fixed income managers at PIMCO this morning? Well, so I, I think you kind of have to put the the whole you know coronavirus situation in perspective, um, and and that is to be humble about it, because I know you know historically you know instances like this ultimately you know the you know the the virus subsides at some point, and when that happens, you have economic activity that. Uh, rebounds or returns to normal, but there's a lot of uncertainty around the path to get there. Um, the depth of the, the the type of disruption and the how long that disruption lasts is very uncertain, um, and it's certainly possible, you know, that this could, you know, push the U.S. and, and other developed market economies into recession before we get right. that ultimate rebound. Okay, well, PIMCO had a brilliant call on this. I'm not going to give you all the credit that, that PIMCO deserves, but you were certainly part of a team that was exceptionally cautious on GDP uh, into 18 months ago and into 12 months ago. You're where you thought you'd be, right? Um, yeah, I mean, so, you know, we were we were more cautious on on the, the potential impact of, you know, the trade war. Um, and we, we called it a window of weakness late last year, um, you know, because we thought that could, you know, disrupt manufacturing um, in the U.S. We ultimately got uh, the trade deal, um, which we thought was a little bit better. Uh, so coming into this coronavirus, actually, things, the initial conditions in the U.S. economy were actually, you know, looking somewhat better, as were they in the rest of the world. Um, you know, actually, global manufacturing growth looked like it was um, stabilizing and maybe even rebounding, led by China. Now, of course, all of that, uh, you know, comes into question now that we have, uh, you know, this coronavirus outbreak. So, Tiffany, the Fed, you know, is trying its best. I guess is a great way to a good way to kind of uh, phrase it. You know, with that uh, intra meeting intermeeting rate cut earlier this week. What do you think the Fed's going to do going forward? And is there much it can do? Um, well, you know, we so if you look at what one way to think about this is just to look at historical precedent. And if you look at the emergency rate cuts or intermediate rate cuts that we've seen, um, you know, over call it, you know, since the uh, you know early 90s, we've had seven instances of them. Um, each of them, the meeting directly after that intermediate rate cut, the Fed also cut. Um, you know, so I think by that historical precedent, we should absolutely expect a cut. Uh, at the meeting in March. You know, one thing that I thought was interesting was that the, you know, before the blackout period, which actually starts tomorrow, we had several speakers overnight. They didn't really push back against the current market pricing, you know, which which is pricing in a probability yeah. that they could even cut 50 again. Um, and, you know, certainly that would be consistent with historical precedent as well. What is the efficacy to our listeners of a 100 basis point rate cut over three cups of PIMCO coffee? <laughs> What's it mean? Yeah, well, you know, I, I think certainly, and the Federal Reserve understands this, you know, monetary policy is not going to stop the spread of the virus. It's not going to be particularly effective against supply chain disruptions that we expect. But what monetary policy can do, you know, and, and, and Powell talked about this, is monetary policy can try to create conditions that instead of exacerbating an economic shock, um, you know, they, they try to buffer it. So what tends to happen when you have a growth shock is that can lead to market panic. It can lead 
lead to tighter financial conditions, bank pull it, banks pulling back on credit, um, you know, and that ultimately exacerbates right. uh, exacerbates the economic shock. So I think the Fed wants to try to set conditions to right. where they do, it doesn't do that. Uh, it's gonna be, we'll get to next week. Tiffany Welding, thank you so much. Let's talk about the virus. The number of cases globally nearing 100,000. More infections have now been reported in the United States, in Germany uh, and in South Korea. Farley Cleghorn of uh, the Palladium Group, he is the health director there, joining us now from Washington to discuss all of this. Farley, let's talk about what we know and what we don't know. What we know is that we don't have enough test kits and by extension, therefore, we don't know exactly how many people have got the virus, how fast it's spreading, what the delta is. What can you tell us? Well, that's exactly correct. Thank you. Um, we don't have enough test kits in the U.S. We don't seem to be able to operationalize uh, enough test kits to get them to the right people. What do I mean by that? Well, we need to understand how many people are being exposed, how many people have acquired the infection, how many people develop clinical symptoms, and then how many people develop severe disease. Obviously, the last step is how many people die. And in the U.S., the last estimate I've seen is that we've only done about 1,500 tests so far. And there have been quite a lot of missed opportunities uh, in order to get to a broader uh, implementation of testing so that we have a much better picture of the epidemiology of this virus in the country. Uh, doctor, it's wonderful to have you with us, and particularly with your decades out of Johns Hopkins University and your direct work with the government facilities. I'm not going to mince words, doctor, and you've been very delicate about this. There is a parting sure. of the ways between the President of the United States and the people like you representing the institutions of science in the government. How do we get this fixed by Monday morning? How do we get the virologist to be front and center and advising the public, given the messaging we're seeing from the executive branch? Well, one way is to activate uh, mechanisms that are uh, tried and tested by, for example, the Ebola epidemic, where we have a platform in a country, and, and the US, of course, does have such a platform. Uh, it's called the One Health Platform. Uh, it's a whole of government, uh, very articulated system from top to bottom, where uh, the, the government in charge, the executive branch, as well as uh, branches of government that have responsibility for health and safety, are coordinated with state governments and local governments. And there is a plan of action that allows people to take actions without doing it on their own. And this is something that we have not seen uh, in the last few days in the U.S. Uh, we definitely need more coordination. As I said, uh, the ability to test people is a critical part of yeah. understanding the epidemiology of a virus. I mean, this is very important, folks. Just to give you the local feel here at our world headquarters, two of our uh, major prep schools, Collegiate and the Spence School, are actually closed today as they clean those uh, buildings. And we all have our, you know, individual local community stories. Doctor, I look at the complexities of the test kit at CDC, and I don't want to get into a discussion of uh, RNA or DNA dynamics, which you're expert in. How complex are the test kits 
How easy are they to replicate, manufacture, and introduce to the public? Well, these tests are, are uh, viral nucleic tests. That is, they're actually looking for proteins that are in the virus and using a method called PCR, which is polymerase chain reaction. So essentially, you take uh, some human tissue, which comes from your nose, your mouth, your throat, your uh, trachea, and you subject it to this test where you're looking to amplify these bits of viral RNA. So it's an RT-PCR test. Uh, the results should be available in 24 hours. The problem is we have not licensed or leveraged the private sector enough to get enough test kits out to the American public. And this is in stark contrast to, for example, China and South Korea. South Korea has done over 100,000 tests to date. Uh, they're using their own homegrown tests. RT-PCR is actually not that hard to do. Uh, you simply have to have uh, the facilities to get the primers made and to get them out to the people who can run the tests. Now, a new step occurred over the last couple of days where uh, private sector developed tests can, in fact, be used, and that is going to rapidly increase the number of tests available in the U.S. Doctor, are countries with universal health care more capable of dealing with, the, dealing with this virus than those that don't? Well, I think in terms of planning, we mentioned planning. The, the idea is to do enough risk assessment so you can plan appropriately. And, in, and then to have a risk communication strategy that avoids fear and confusion, which is what you get when you don't have an articulated plan. And we, you know, some of the volatility in the stock market we're seeing right. re represents fear and volatility. And uh, so in order for um, systems, health systems, to respond appropriately, they must have, as part of that plan, identified the number of rooms, for example, in ICUs that can provide the kind of complex respiratory care for patients who have severe disease and who are at the risk of death. Right. These are primarily older people who have concomitant illness and who develop pneumonia after they become infected. Now, in many countries, even highly developed health systems that are single-payer health systems like the UK, if you had a sustained epidemic over time, it would really stress the system so that you would have to bring right. into play new, new respiratory ICUs. Uh, the problem in the US is we are a system of systems. So as far as I know yet, we do not have a coordinated plan for an expanded epidemic where we would need more respiratory right. ICUs. Doctor, this is wonderful. Because of time, I've only got one more question. I'm going to be very delicate yes. here. I'm at home with my daughter, Afterthought, and we're washing our hands with soap and water, singing yes. Happy Birthday. I mean, that's what it's come down to this weekend. Let me go to the most jingoistic, racist idea right now, floating around to get our viewers worldwide through the weekend. The number one thing collapsing in America are Chinese restaurants. Would you order Chinese takeout this weekend? Would you go into a Chinese restaurant? I mean, if that's the height of the paranoia we're facing right now, I want to hear from you as a Johns Hopkins expert. Can I take Chinese takeout this weekend? Yes, you should. One, because you're helping the economy. Two, because the very notion of just having Chinese food and, and increasing your risk for coronavirus is, to me, borders on racist. 
So I think, yes, you should have Chinese food. I hope it's good Chinese food that you're going to have. Uh, and lather up, because uh, 20 seconds with soap and water, the secret is in the lather. So if you don't lather up, yeah, it's those bubbles that break down right. microorganisms. Oh, that's great. That's, that's good to know. And we'll be sure Guy and I have to write uh, soap. Doctor, this has been extremely valuable. We look forward to speaking to you again. Dr. Clegorn with Palladium uh, Group is their health uh, director. Hugely informative. Pleased to say that weighing in on the bond market now, Jeff Rosenberg, senior PM on BlackRock's systematic fixed income team. Jeff, fantastic to have you with us. Your first take, please. Well, I think you said it. It's, you know, the most, um, you know, irrelevant payroll report we've had in a long time. I'd love to talk about the payroll report because it's some good news. And as you said, it doesn't really matter. It's backward looking. It does remind us of how strong the economy was going into this coronavirus. But this this information is dated. That's why it's not market moving. I guess what you could say is at least it's not bad news. If it was bad news into the coronavirus fears, who knows how the panic might have uh, accelerated. But this is a reminder of the strength of the economy going into the shock. What we had last week was the monetary policy response. I mean, obviously we had it this week, but last week's declines in the equity markets prompted this week's monetary policy response. This week's equity market response, next week's story is the fiscal policy response. And that's what we're going to be talking about. I think we're going to move to that conversation because there's a very limited amount of what monetary policy can do. And it's going to be much greater about the focus on fiscal policy. If we get a strong, coherent, robust response, I think that could be very beneficial. But to the earlier question, we don't know what the demand side shock is to the supply from the supply side shock, but you need a fiscal policy response to, to address that. Monetary policy is limited. Jeff, to your point about momentum, and this is something that Jim was talking about too, that the momentum was there in the U.S. economy before this shock. Why does that matter? What does that tell you in terms of the shape of the recovery and the scope of the recovery? Well, it, it tells you that you you have the ability to limit the damage to the economy because you're dealing with a shock from a position of strength, as opposed to dealing with a shock from a position of weakness and a position of vulnerability from a fundamental economic perspective. Now, I think what's going on in terms of the financial markets is that you had a shock from a fundamental economic perspective to a financial market that was very vulnerable. You had complacency, you had valuations at very high levels, you had very little cushion. So a lot of the drop is coming from very high levels. Or if we think about it from the fixed income perspective, a lot of the widening in credit spreads is coming from very tight levels, you're getting big moves in spreads, but the levels that you're at are hardly anything near uh, recessionary type levels. They're getting you back into kind of fair value, mid, mid-expansion mid kind of levels. So there was a bit of over, uh, if you look at the delta, the change looks very aggressive, but it's coming from a very tight level. So financial markets were a bit more vulnerable. The economy was much more resilient. You can make the argument that stocks are not pricing in a recession. PE multiple is still very high. Bonds, however, are. Do you think that bonds are overdone, that they're overbought at this level? No, I, I think you got to be careful about you know bonds pricing in a recession versus bonds pricing in a, a preemptive policy reaction. Uh, and in some sense, 
enforcing that preemptive policy reaction. That's the kind of strange world that we're in is that is that financial conditions matter so much to the Fed that the bond market reaction is in anticipation of the Fed reacting to financial market conditions. And so the bond market is, is, is kind of previewing where the Fed's going to go. We saw that this week with 50 basis points. You're seeing it again with another 50 basis points anticipated. So, you know, does that predict recession? Not sure. Right. Does it predict policy response? Absolutely. And then the question is, is the combined policy response, again, monetary and fiscal, enough to forestall right. the recession? Jeffrey Rosenberg with us, of course, with his wonderful strategy work at BlackRock and, of course, the mathematics of Carnegie Mellon as well. Jeff, I want to go Matthew right now. I've got a fancy log chart of two-year yield. The abruptness, the first derivative moves, the second derivative acceleration uh, that we're seeing has been extraordinary. The Greek letter for this is gamma. Should our listeners care about gamma does does the abruptness of all these moves really matter forward well you know there's a lot of technical aspects to financial markets that encourage this you know rate of change and acceleration you got you got a, a conversation another terminology for gamma is convexity you have a lot of convexity in the market i mean th- this is a remarkable world where you know the 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 do- the, the financial people want to talk about uh, the virus but the but 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 you can have the doctors wanting to talk about refinancing their mortgages. And and so when you're refinancing your mortgage, what you're getting is a lot of that gamma in the market. It's a huge marketplace. It has a lot of dynamics. And it's one of the factors behind the accelerated move. Certainly, there's a fundamental factor, which is the expectation for policy change, but it gets exacerbated by these technical factors of a demand for duration when the rest of us are going to look at this as an opportunity to refinance our mortgages. When we do that, the, the, the demand for replacing that interest rate risk drives these rates even lower. So there's a lot of that yeah. going on in the bond market. Jeff, right just quickly from me, my final question, just picking up on the pace of this move. Two Mondays ago, the higher the session for the two-year yield, 130.50. The 30-year yield is south of that right now, and the two-year is now only 46 basis points. When things move this quick, and I want you to take me inside the technicals of the market, when things move this quick, do things break? Well, that's a question of financial vulnerabilities, right? And and you know, in the in the rate market, part of that rate hedging, that's a very liquid market. It's a very liquid market, it's a functional market, and it's not breaking, but it's it's bending. And when I say bending, it's accelerating the moves. In terms of the breakage of the market, where you have greater vulnerabilities, is really in different parts of the fixed income market, where you see liquidity and cash flows and difficulties of refinancing. That's a bit what the preemptive monetary policy is partly to address. Let's make sure there's ample amounts of liquidity. There's no technical defaults because someone can't get access to liquidity. And you certainly see that in a global perspective when you look at, say, for example, the Chinese response and the fiscal monetary Mm -hmm. policy response to ensure that small, medium enterprises are getting access to rolling over as they're having a short-term cash flow issue. So those policy interventions can help in those 
those circumstances prevent markets from breaking right. and exacerbating losses where they otherwise wouldn't okay. need to occur. Mr. Rosenberg with us. He is a senior portfolio manager of BlackRock and their systemic fixed income team. All right, Jeff, I want you to go short-term systemic right now. I call it the trust market. Folks, this is well inside the two-year space. It is the trust of overnight money. It is the trust of three-day money. It is the trust of 90-day money. How's the trust market doing, Jeff Rosenberg? Um, I'm not sure I'm totally following uh, that, but if you're talking about short-term confidence... Yes, short-term confidence is evidenced by the short-term paper market into the weekend. Yeah, I, I mean, look, the, sh- the short-term markets are, are are fine. There's a there's a demand for cash. There's a there's a flight to quality. There's a flight out of risk. That's what the markets are saying. That's a, 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 a normal expected reaction to a lot of panic and a lot of uncertainty and a lot of risk that people have had in their in their equity portfolios. You know, we looked at uh, equity allocations over the last five years from, you know, some of the data sources that, that provide you kind of aggregate holdings. Yeah. Everybody's equity allocations have mm. drifted higher. Uh, not a huge amount, but they've been willing to drift higher because it's been a, a great fundamental market. And you have this outside shock that no one predicted. And you came into it, as I was saying in the earlier section, you know, the economy came into it resilient, but financial markets came into it vulnerable. And so what you're having here is a forced rebalancing. And as part of that forced rebalancing, the beneficiaries are, are cash and safe haven assets and bonds, as we're, as we're clearly seeing. And, and you're also seeing that now in terms of the relative underperformance of higher risk segments of the equity markets, uh, with the exception of some weird days last week. You're seeing that again today. REITs, utilities, interest rates, bond proxies doing better. That's all, you know, normal behavior, uh, but it is reflective of this de-risking of portfolios. And that goes, Lisa, right to where uh, your wheelhouse is. We do this, folks, with the futures back over to negative 94. Lisa, that's right to this spread study you've been looking at all week. I'm just wondering, from your perspective, do you think that the corollary for this is 2007-2008? No, no, and 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 really, guys, let's not do this. Let's not panic people uh, in in that way. That what happened in two thousand seven, two thousand and eight was very unique, and why you saw that happen in commercial paper markets and in the credit markets was because the center of the crisis was in the financial system, right? Let's calm people down a little bit rather than riling them up. This financial system is much more resilient to an external shock of coronavirus than to an external shock of subprime mortgages, which wasn't external. It was central, and it broke the financial system. And that's why you saw the commercial paper markets blow up and create more panic and more uncertainty. Those markets are resilient. They're operating as they should. They're reflective of flight to quality. But the issues and the concerns are not there. The issues and the concerns are with the uncertainty over what a virus does to economic activity. We're all feeling it in terms of we're getting emails from our schools. Are they shutting down our companies? Where are we working? That's where the panic is. Let's not panic people 
in other areas where there isn't a panic, those markets are working well. There's more resilience. We will get through this once the uncertainty of how bad the impact to the economy is. And as I said earlier, we're going to need a little bit of help from our policymakers, and we're going to get it in terms of a fiscal policy response that will be robust and will help to mm. offset the demand side shock. And we'll wake up and we'll see what the payroll report is reminding us of, which is, hey, we came into this with a pretty resilient economy. Absolutely. That resilience will be our source of strength when this uncertainty passes. Half a million jobs in uh, 90 days is a, excuse me, in 60 days is a big number. Jeffrey Rosenberg of BlackRock, thank you so much. For the White House's view on the jobs report, I'm pleased to say we're joined on Bloomberg Television and on Bloomberg Radio by Larry Kudlow, National Economic Council Director. Larry, I know you must be exhausted given your duties so far this morning, so let's get straight into it. The good news is the labour market going into this growth scare looks pretty decent. Yes, right. By, by the way, I feel great. And thanks for having me back on the show, Jonathan. The labour market looks excellent, it's very strong, and incidentally, most sectors in the economy look strong. We're, we're through the first two months of the, of the first quarter, right? So we got January and February. And some of the China influence is already affecting us, but the numbers are probably better named by thought. Um, you may be 25 to 3% in the first quarter. I know, as a realist, um, economic growth is likely to slow in the second quarter and maybe the third. I don't want to get too far ahead of it because some of these... Uh, Virus numbers in China come away down. Outside China, not so much. But I'm just saying the U.S. economy is very strong. 273,000 jobs. And as you know, Jonathan, with revisions, 358,000 jobs. That's a blowout. And wage rates still rising. And, you know, the blue-collar boom we've talked about, still there from these data. Uh, Middle-income, lower-wage people are outperforming their managers. Unemployment rate, 3.5% across the board, every single demographic group. So that's awfully good. Housing is improving. Building is improving. You have a lot of construction jobs in this yeah. report and a pickup in manufacturing. So, yes, the economic base is strong. The fundamentals of the economy is strong. We are going to see uh, some issues coming up from the coronavirus. I get that. But I think for the United States, this is going to be a temporary problem. Larry, not a time to panic, but a time to be prepared. And I hope it's temporary as well. We've seen the rate cuts from the Federal Reserve, an emergency 50 basis point cut. What's the administration working on to complement that? You know, any of our um, fiscal policies, uh, Secretary Mnuchin and I are talking about it, Treasury and uh, NEC and other groups are helping us. We're in the camp, Jonathan, that wants timely and targeted micro measures, not large sweeping, you know, hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars uh, that don't affect incentives and don't affect growth in any permanent way. You know, we're worried about people uh, who may have problems with jobs and wages because they have to stay home. Uh, we're worried about small businesses, for example, uh, that might need some help to get through this, if it turns out. We're worried about certain sectors of the economy, airlines coming to mind, but I don't want to get too deep on that, that might need some help. We're looking for targeted measures that will do the most good in a short period of time, uh, not large macro kinds of 
solutions which don't help economic incentives and have no permanent impact on growth. We want to just get through this and help folks as much as we can in a targeted way. Larry, that's music to my ears because we've got a bit of a problem here. This can be temporary. It's a one-off shock. It will fade. But what will determine how temporary this is is the kind of tools we have ready to deploy to help SMEs, to help some people who are struggling if they've got to stay at home. So walk me through the yes. policies, the actual policies. Yes. You're having the discussion. When do we start to get some results? Um, stay tuned. Stay with us. We may have more to say about this next week. You know, I think um, we need to do this, Jonathan, when the actual facts come in. Now, we're getting reports. Uh, from industries. Uh, we had the airline people in the White House uh, earlier this week. Uh, President Trump's talking to a lot of major uh, sectors across the economy. Uh, we just want to keep gathering as many facts and information as we can before we come up with anything specific. But we are looking at this, and as I say, temporary and targeted uh, to get through this, which will be, uh, uh, God willing, a, a temporary virus a problem. You know, that's our approach. We're not looking for big picture, uh, gigantic packages that will not help growth that we've learned in the past and will be, um, you know, huge budget busters. Larry, something you've said concerns me, though, that we're going to wait. We're going to wait to see what the data says. And what I've seen so far is not just the administration, but signs coming from policymakers elsewhere that they're just being held hostage by, say, what happens in the next move in financial markets. And they haven't got the tools ready to deploy when they need to. This should be the planning stage. We should be ready to go. Have we seriously got no policies ready to deploy? If things get worse next week, the week after? Uh, my short answer is yes. We can move very rapidly. And we're, we're doing a lot of homework right now on all these points. Jonathan, I don't want to put them out publicly because I understand, we're but restore my confidence because we, we have a moment now where there is a real lack of confidence, Larry. Uh, and you know me, I don't like to lay it on thick. This isn't about making people fearful of things. I just think there's a lack of confidence in global officials, not on the medical side, and that's not for you and I to discuss today, but on the economic side. Talk to me about the policies. Have we got payroll tax cuts ready to go? Do we have a targeted lending program to SMEs ready to go? Do we have a tax forgiveness season ready to deploy if we need to? Uh, we have made decisions on some of that. Again, payroll tax cuts, we can debate the pros and cons. I lean against them. We've tried them in the past. Temporary tax cut that cost a lot of money, you know, $650 billion. They don't last. There's no incentive effect because they're temporary. Again, Jonathan, yeah. I, I think the basic view here amongst my colleagues is temporary and targeted. So if cash injections are needed uh, to help folks who are at home because of the virus one way or another, and lose a paycheck or two, we want to help them. If small businesses um, are in dire condition in certain parts of the country, we can inject some cash. That could be true in farming, that could be true in manufacturing, that can be true uh, in transportation and a lot of other places. So to pull that trigger will not take much time uh, at all. And probably we'd like to do it internally, you know, if we can by executive order. We just got the $8 billion package from Congress. That's good, helping us on the, on the medical side of this. Very important. Thank them, thank them for it. Yep. Um, we may need to come back. If we need to go back to Congress, we will. We won't hesitate. But we, we are in the planning stage. And by the way, uh, you know, Secretary Mnuchin reminds me, the G7 just had a very important conference call. 
and all these big countries are making their own plans uh, as things develop in those countries. So I don't want to be premature, but yes, this can all be done in a very timely way. We just need, you know, information gathering is very important, Jonathan, and I, I will agree. say this to you. With respect to the jobs report today, which was a blowout number, I mean, employment is blown out under President Trump way beyond what anybody thought possible. But that good income numbers, good consumer spending, good housing numbers, let's not assume the worst. You've got a menu of options here. All right, some options are negative. Some options are either less negative or rather positive. And I want to, you know, wait and see how that plays out. The same is true with the actual medical reports on the contagion of the virus. But Larry, so let's just wait and see. Let's not extrapolate I totally agree. worst case. And I don't want to teach you how to be a policymaker. You're far more experienced than me. But you know what this is about. You hope for the best, you prepare for the worst. You've told me you're ready to move quickly. <laughs> let's talk about thresholds. I've got a bond market with yields at all-time lows. I've got crude down 7 8% on my screen right now. My Bloomberg terminal is lighting up. It's lighting up. It's the threshold is what will determine you to move and deploy those tools that you say are ready to go in a timely fashion. Does the market dictate that? Does the data dictate that? What dictates that? Well, look, both will dictate that, but we, we can't, we, look, you've got myself, Secretary Mnuchin, others, President Trump for that matter. Uh, we all have a lot of market experience. We all have a lot of private sector business experience. So yes, of course we watch financial markets. On the other hand, you have to watch the actual data on the ground, economic data, the health data, the virus-related data. So that's, we have to do that. We can't just make a move because the bond does thus you know, yep. in two hours on, on, on Thursday or Friday. We can't do that. We're watching it. We're, we're, trying, to watch, we're trying to do our homework and, and watch everything. I, I just want to say, though, Jonathan, again, I'm not the medical expert. I am part of the task force. I, I'm in constant touch on a daily basis with our really experienced uh, CDC people and others who have done such a fabulous job. I mean, I've got to give them a lot of credit. They're all over it. Um, most Americans are not at risk. That is their view. Most Americans are not at risk. The biggest risk cohort is, in fact, the seniors, the elderly folks, and they need to be extra cautious. Yep. The younger you are, the less risk you're facing. And most Americans, over 80%, recover rather easily should they get the virus. I want to put that out because my point is if you're healthy, if you're healthy, and you exercise common sense about washing your hands and Kleenexes for sneezing and coughing and things of that nature. And you avoid the obvious uh, places where there are travel advisors. But most Americans are healthy and should go about their business. That's what I'm saying. Larry, That's what the data is suggesting. I respect you a lot, and you know that. But neither of us are medical professionals, and I have a duty of care to my audience, that neither of us are medical professionals. And I want to focus on the economic data, not the data from the virus. On the economic data, it's clear already that delivery times in the PMIs are stretching out. They're getting longer. We've got a supply chain issue. An easy way of addressing the supply chain issue would be to drop some of the tariffs. Why are we not talking about that? You said it's about the data. There's an easy policy response. There's no follow-through. Why not? Um, just quickly, the, the supply chain data shows some a slowdown in deliveries. Yes. N not huge, I might add, Jonathan. Not yet. Not huge. It may be out there, but so far really quite manageable. 
Um, with respect to tariff policy, um, I've not heard the president mention that. It doesn't seem to be on the table right now. We would undoubtedly like to focus much more on our domestic issues, whether they're economic issues or they're health-related issues. So the tariff question is not being addressed at the present time. But Larry, final question. Can you see why this is a problem for global markets right now, that the president is signing a bill and the only policy initiative he's talking about is cutting rates again and getting the Fed to stimulate? And you and I, and I know you know this, there's a policy ready to go to offset a lot of fear out there at the moment, whether it is justified or not, and there is a reluctance to deploy it. And I just don't understand why. Well, Jonathan, we have to be thoughtful and careful and analytic. We want to do, we don't want to willy-nilly throw 300, 400 billion dollars with a thousand dollar check to every American. But Larry, that's that not what I'm saying. I'm not saying a easy. helicopter drop. I'm talking about that removing stuff tariffs. Is, and it doesn't work in the past. I'm talking about we removing are, tariffs. I'm not talking about helicopter drops. Well, you know what right, I'm not. I, regarding, as I say, removing tariffs, uh, not everyone agrees with your analysis. Uh, it's something that uh, thus far is not surfacing yet. We, we like our China policy, and we like the fact that China has cut its own tariffs. And by the way, when this virus period ends, as it will, you're going to see a major export boom from the United States to China that is going to grow the economy by at least another percentage point in the years ahead, and I wouldn't be surprised if we saw that towards the end of the year. Regarding other measures that I mentioned, measures that would be timely and targeted towards individuals or small businesses, or perhaps some industrial sectors, that's on the table. We are in the planning, we are in the discussion and planning phase. Uh, Jonathan, again, uh, we have to exercise some caution and analysis. We are in touch with everybody in the economy, every single sector. They're coming to visit us on a daily basis, and the president is deeply involved. And my hat's off to the vice president, who's leading this uh, health care uh, task force. So, Jonathan, don't be impatient. You've you got to exercise some judgment before you jump in, but we're on it. Trust me, we're on it. I'm telling you this morning, probably more than has been put out publicly, we are on it, and we are looking at these various targeted approaches. Larry, you know I respect you, and I appreciate your transparency today, and thank you for giving us your time. Larry Kudlow there, the White House National Economic Council Director. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.